Good morning once again. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, uh, we're grateful, Lord, to be able to come into your presence and worship. And now, Lord, as we continue to worship by opening our hearts to your word, we pray by your Holy Spirit, come. Uh, direct the teaching, but also direct the hearing, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that understand what it is you have for us individually as a church, Lord, as we yield to the working of your spirit. So we commit ourselves towards that end. We thank you, Lord, for your love, for your grace, and for your presence in our lives. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, (laughs) the reason why it says part two on the screen, if you were here with us, uh, I, it doesn't happen a lot with me, but, and there's this kind of this kind of quirky little pride thing in me that goes, I shouldn't run out of time, but I did. And, um, I just trust that with the extra things that the Lord gives me, I've learned over the years that as I'm teaching that, to just go with those things. And if we run out of time, we run out of time. So this is part two in Hebrews chapter eight. The intention was to cover the whole chapter, uh, but I ended up with like 12 pages in notes by the time we closed that were not touched. So, uh, and it's amazing too, because this has been probably, if not the busiest, one of the busiest weeks I've had since I've been in Newburgh. Uh, just with things piled up, with things that needed to be tended to for our move. And, um, and, and God is so gracious. It's like He gave me lots of extra time to do that because I already had stuff prepared. So, you know, I, I got to kind of cheat a little bit on that, but, uh, we got a lot of new material this morning. We're going to start with kind of backtracking a bit because as you know, context is everything. Uh, I love the ditty that I, I picked up in Bible college that a text without a context is a con. And so you got to be careful not to take things out of context. So with that, just kind of recapping briefly uh, chapter 8 to this point. Remember, the, the writer, he begins in chapter 8, verse 1. He says, now, the, this is the main point that I'm making with you. And he's talking about, we already have this high priest. We already have this guy that's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not of Levi. And we have this priesthood in place. It's not something that's ethereal. It's not something that's theoretical. This is a practical reality in the life of every believer. And that we get all the benefits that come with that because it's a better priesthood. So he talks about the fact that Jesus is seated uh, in heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. And th- we looked at that. Remember, we talked about the reason why he's seated, seated is because his work is finished. There were no seats in the tabernacle, no seats, no chairs in the temple that the only one who has ever been able to sit down is Jesus. Because, And the reason there were no seats is because the work was never done. It was perpetual. It was ongoing. It never eliminated sin. It kind of put a patch on the tire. It didn't get rid of it. It just made a temporary remedy for sin, a covering for sin. But then the people had to go back and continue to do that day by day, week by week, year by year. And so... We looked at that. Then we looked at the fact that he's a minister in the heavenly sanctuary. Remember, we talked about the earthly high priest could minister in the earthly copy. 
of the sanctuary. And, and, and he said to make sure that you do everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. It's an earthly duplicate of that which already existed in heaven. And so there's Jesus now, our better high priest with a better priesthood, uh, administering in a better tabernacle in a better at a better altar and so he's there ministering for us interceding for us praying for you praying for me as he goes uh, and so as we go along i'm going to pick it up in verse six it, we don't start on the slides till verse seven but again context it says but now <clears throat> he's obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Remember, we're talking about the promises of God. Why are they better? Why is this new covenant better than the old? Because, uh, and look, as I love the way that this writer, his, his, his mind is so ordered and, and he's taking point by point. He's taking it piece by piece, breaking it down, and then illustrating why Jesus is a better deal, why his, his ministry is better, why the covenant is better, why the priesthood is better, why the sacrifice is better. And, and, and then he's saying that, he, he's summarizing here, that he's mediating a better covenant built on better promises. Why are the promises better? We're going to look at that this morning. I'm going to read through verses 7 through 13. That's where we finished last week, and then We'll take some things out of it and, and move forward from there. So verse 7 uh, in Hebrews chapter 8, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now he's quoting Jeremiah 31. Talk about that in a minute. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, or iniquities, as that's the King James, I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, he goes into this length, lengthy quote from Isaiah chapter, or from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and he's essentially taking God's word and applying it to their lives. That's what we do here. That's what, I mean, we've got nothing if we don't have the word of God. And we could read this thing, we could study it all day long, but if we're not willing to make that transition to say, Lord, how does that fit into my life? How does your word apply to the circumstances, to the trials, to the things I'm going through? How does your word come to bear in my life? Folks, if you're not doing that, if that's not a habit in your life, it's one that you should adopt. Because again, by his Holy Spirit, he takes the word of God and, and drives it into the hearts of the people of God. And that's where transformation takes place. We 
I I mentioned before, the Bible's not, it's not like the self-help program. God's not interested in making my flesh a better place to live. He says, no, there needs to be a death in your family, and that should be you. And as you die to self and you avail yourself of the things I have to say here, your life will be transformed. You will find that you have greater peace. You'll find that you have greater understanding. You'll find that you have a greater ability to walk through this life and not be shoved around by every circumstance that comes your way. We go through hard things. We go through things that impact our hearts. We go through things that, that, that if it weren't for the Lord's work in my life, they would, it would knock me around. And yet, the writer here is, he's just setting a beautiful example for us because he's reaching into God's word. We talked about it last week. We were looking at all of the things at the temple that the people would have seen, all the things in, in Jerusalem that people would have heard during their feast days, especially when you've got this tens of thousands of people coming into the city and the, the whole responsive deal between the priests and the people as they worshiped and all of that. And the writer's saying, no, all of that's expired. That's of, of, of no real value to you. Let me tell you where the value is. And now he reaches into God's very word itself and says, let me show you some things and I want you to apply this to your life because that, even though there's a lot that appeals to the senses, it's not going to do anything for you in, in the end. It, it, there's just, it's, it's been superseded. It's been expired. It, it's not of value to you now. And as they thought about going back to their old ways, it was really, really important that he brought them to a place of understanding that. So as he quotes this this thing in Jeremiah, remember last week I shared with you, Jeremiah was ministering at a very interesting, critical time in Israel's history. Well, actually, he was in the southern section of the nation. It was divided. Uh, The northern had already been carted off to Nineveh and all that. But where Jeremiah is prophesying is because the southern tribe, the the, the southern area, Judah was what it was called, uh, was in abject rebellion towards God. They were absolutely into the weirdest worship. They were you know, making their kids pass through the fire is what it says. And there's a whole thing. I've stood in the, in the Valley of Hinnom, which is now the valley, or it was in the New Testament, the Valley of Gehenna. It was where the, the garbage dump was. But it's right at the edge of the city of David. You drop down into this ravine, and, and it's there where Jeremiah wrote about the Valley of Tophet. T-O-P-H-E-T. And it was an interesting place. The reason why it was called the Valley of Tophet was because that's where the guys would go down. Tophet means drums. And it, in Jeremiah's day, they would go down and they had this big bronze statue uh, called Moloch. And he had these arms that were outstretched and a big hole in the back. They'd build a fire and they'd stoke the fire until this thing glowed red. And and what they would do, and this is just to give you an example of, of the godlessness that was going on in their land. And what they would do is they would have a, a, a group of men line up with what looked like kettle drums. We'd, we'd kind of call them kettle drums in our day. But these great big drums, and they would start to pound the drums. And they would get louder and louder and louder. And that's when they would take children, babies, and lay them on the red-hot arms of the statue and sacrifice them to the, the false god, the pagan god Moloch. When you read making your children pass through the fire in the Old Testament, that's what it's talking about. 
And so in the middle of all of that, in the middle of this horrible scene in Judah with, with horrible leadership, Jeremiah is prophesying the destruction of the city, and it would come very shortly, within a few years after he prophesied. In the middle of all that, he says, wait, I want you to give my people some encouragement, like they had it coming, right? You, you, people talk about, well, there's no grace with the God of the Old Testament. Oh, you look at what he says here in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the, the north, and, and, and the house of Judah, the south, and it won't be like the covenant that they broke when I took them out of Egypt. I'm going to do something completely new. I'm going to write my law, my words in their hearts and, and on their minds. It's not going to be on rocks anymore. It won't be on stones. And he gives this beautiful promise to these people that were anything but deserving. And, and, and we looked at last week, the old covenant, the whole thing, I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments, it's thou shalt and thou shalt not. You will or you will not is what it says. And the whole premise of that old covenant was about man's responsibility. It was, it was on man's faithfulness to carry it out. And here, as Jeremiah prophesies six times in this passage, he says, I will. The voice of God speaking, I will do this. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. I will make this new covenant. I'll write my word on your heart. I will do all the work. And we've looked at the beauty of the new covenant in that even from a legal sense, that Jesus upholds both sides. He initiates the covenant, and then he guarantees it. Then he co-signs on it. He says, yeah, I'll guarantee that. He holds up both sides. All that we have to do is by faith come and appropriate his word to our lives. Uh, I was thinking about, there's a on the new building, there, there's a, a deal over the door. Uh, it's, and, you know, I, I spent years in the sign business, and I, I it's a blank space. And I look at a blank space, and I go, what do we need to put on that? I mean, that's just kind of how I'm wired. And I was thinking, okay, uh, and I mentioned to my wife yesterday, she goes, you never mentioned that before? I said, I know, I know, I know. But I was thinking about Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, one of my favorite verses, and, and it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And I thought, what a great invitation for people to come to our little church, you know, maybe have that over the door. So anyway, pray about that for me, but I'm going to do something with that space. I mean, <laughs> it's blank. It just has the street numbers on there, and they're kind of store-bought and look ugly. So we'll get something up there. But anyway, folks, the whole thing here is this new covenant is something that is a beautiful thing. It's something that God is initiating on man's behalf, and man simply, all he says for us to do is to come, is to respond to by faith embrace the promises that he's giving. Why? Because they're better promises. They're better than the old covenant that was based on you. And now this beautiful new covenant based on him, based on his ability to complete the work, and then basically say, all right, you come to me by faith, you believe that, and I'm going to place perfection on your life. And oh, by the way, I will start working and perfecting you as you go. But initially at the front end of the transaction, when, when somebody comes to the Lord, when they give their life to Christ, when they say, you know what? I believe that. He says, I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to declare you holy. 
I'm going to work, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, and I'm going to slice him in. I am going to take up residence in your heart, in your life. I'm going to guide and direct every aspect of your life as you yield to me. Who would want to walk away from an agreement like that? And people do all the time. Folks, if you don't have a burden for the lost, for them to come to a knowledge of this, you should pray about that. Think about it. Because I'll tell you what, eternity hangs in the balance. God has made it easy. Literally easy. And is it hard walking with the Lord sometimes? Yeah, of course it is sometimes. Sometimes it's harder than walking with the world. I mean, you're swimming upstream. But is the payoff worth it? Is the benefit infinitely infinitely better. And the writer has been bringing that out to these people. He says in verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. It's pretty easy when you understand the terms of both to see that. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, we read this. The apostle Paul writing, he says, but if the ministry of death, and that's essentially what the old covenant was, uh, written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, and that's what the Old Testament did, it condemned, it didn't, it, we've talked about it before, it gave instructions for living, but it never gave the power to live. And so it, it wasn't the covenant that was fault, faultless, faulted, faulty. <laughs> it wasn't the covenant that was faulty. It was man. Because man doesn't have the ability, because of his depravity, he doesn't have the ability to measure up. It reveals our sinfulness. It doesn't give us a way out of sin. He says, so if the ministry of condemnation had glory, then the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect. Because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Talking about the difference between the two covenants. Talking about the one that Moses brought down when he came down from the mountain. And and he initiated, was used of God to initiate the covenant of law. And now the covenant that Jesus, when he sat there in the upper room and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. When he initiated that so much better, so much more glorious, both on his side and looking at the glory that he has in it and and through working in us and through us, the glory that we reflect back to him. Glorious, glorious covenant. The point in all of that is the system of law just doesn't work. And the fault was in the fact that it, it established an unattainable, unattainable standard for the people Therefore, it illuminated their sinfulness. And so the law was like this light that shone on the hearts of men that showed the depravity that we have, but it never gave a remedy, as I mentioned. And so that's part of why the promises of the new covenant are better. Uh, the, the reason for it is the law, it never addressed the heart of man. It was external. It came at man instead of from within man. That's one of the main contrasts between these two covenants. Verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will, 
make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice he says, finding fault with them in verse 8. And so he's not saying finding fault with the covenant, but finding fault with them because of their inability to keep it. Uh, Again, this whole divided nation that Jeremiah is prophesying into, godless place. When he says the days are coming, he's... God speaking through Jeremiah, prophesying a future covenant, a future contract. Remember we talked about what's a covenant? It's a contract. It's an agreement. God writes it. God initiates it. God supports it. It's his deal. We don't get to do that. And you know what? There are religious organizations out there. I kind of fall a little short of calling them churches. There are religious organizations out there that will rewrite this all day long. And be careful, folks. If it doesn't measure up with what's here, with what's in God's word, run. Stay away from it. There are people that will tie up heavy loads for you. Jesus warned about it in his day when he got in the, actually got and poked the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day in the chest because they had done what I'm talking about. They had tied up heavy loads for men. Something that God never intended for them to take on. This whole burden, this whole yoke. And they were totally going down the wrong path. And they were actually trying to use the word of God to support it. And yet they had so reinterpreted that, that it no longer looked the way that God had intended for it to look. It still happens. It still happens. And again, be discerning. And, and understand the value of knowing what God's word has to say, because as you know this, you'll identify the flaw in that. I mentioned last week, too, the covenant that he's talking about was initially to Israel. And and he's he's talking to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. But I want you to understand that Romans chapter 11 speaks very clearly to this as far as it being for us. Romans 11 talks about the church being the wild olive branch being grafted into the tree. He says, don't be too hostile about Israel because the tree supports the branch, not the branch supporting the tree. And so... Is God finished with Israel? No, he's not. But their rejection was for our glory. Their rejection was to benefit the Gentiles. He's very clear about that in there. And so, yes, was this covenant for Israel? Absolutely. But it was never God's intention for it to stop with Israel. The church is the direct beneficiary of this covenant. And that's part of what he's putting forth to these people. Verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Essentially he's saying, they disregarded me, I disregarded them. Period. You know, the Bible tells us that God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Yeah, I always think of that rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and said, I've kept the law. Man, I got this old covenant. It wasn't old then, but I got this covenant down, man. I have kept all of these things from my youth all the way up, Jesus. Look at this. Look at me. Aren't you proud of me? He didn't say that, but it's kind of what's implied. And, and Jesus said, well, there's one more. Go sell everything you have. Again, folks, it wasn't about... We need to sell everything we have. That was the one, if you're going to base it on law, there's always one more. 
Because you can't keep, you can't hold up the whole thing. Nobody can. And, and, and the reason Jesus told him that, and the man that says that he went away sad, was because he knew that that was more important to him than keeping the law. He didn't want to let go of his stuff. And so, again, that's part of what the point is. And this is that he's saying, you know what? You can try to do this, thou shalt and thou shalt not. But there will always be one more, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Or you can embrace Jesus as Lord, understanding that his covenant is based on I will, not you will, but I will do these things. I will do the work. You simply show up. You simply come by faith. You simply appropriate my word in your life, and I will pour it on. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The point the new covenant is transformation from within. It's not about external law. It's not about regulation, keeping regulations through this external standard. I came out of a cult. I grew up in a cult uh, in the LDS church, and I will freely call it a cult. It is. And, and, And the whole thing there, and in cultic groups in general, is there is always an external thing that you have to follow. Why? Because you don't have the Holy Spirit. If it's a lie, the Holy Spirit never comes in. And the, 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 the beauty of the life of a believer living in the new covenant is that when we come by faith, he says, I'm going to fill you with my very life. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And now anything that looks like obedience on my behalf is I'm simply cooperating with the work that he's initiating in my heart. I will write it on your heart. He's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that I can do anything that's really pleasing in God's sight is because the Holy Spirit is prompting me on. Do you see the difference? Do you see the deceitfulness? These groups out here that are, you know, I'm, and part of what I grew up with is you've got to be obedient to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. That is such an oxymoronic statement to the natural man, it makes sense. The natural man says, oh, I need to do these things. I need to be a religious guy. I need to go, I need to do, and then, and you could just go on and on. I call it hamster on a wheel theology. Because you can run and run and run and you can expend energy and energy and energy and you can do and do and do and obey and obey and obey and oh God, aren't I just, I'm not done yet. It's okay. No, 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 no. And, and you're always busy. Doing. And he says, why don't you just come to me and be? It's about a place, a state of being in the new covenant. It's not about a state of doing. That's why they're called in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. In in chapter 5, they're called the be attitudes. I'm so glad they're not called the do attitudes. Seriously. It's a state of being embracing him and and the the freedom that comes because he has poured his love into my life, into my heart. He's forgiven me for my sins, past, present, future. He is working in me now and he's conforming me to the image of his son. I'm learning to think like Jesus. That's why we have it on the bulletin. 
It's because that's part of the process. It's being in process with him. And don't go looking around to people on one side or the other of you and wonder what God's doing with them. Just let him do what he's doing with you. And it'll work out with them. Have grace. That's free. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds or iniquities. I will remember no more. I don't know about you, but I look at this. I know my past. I know what I'm capable of. I'm fond of saying, not that I'm doing it, but I know what I'm capable of. And and this has got to be the best deal in the universe. This is an offer that is above any offer I could ever embrace. He says, I'm going to be merciful to your unrighteousness? What religion would do that? I, you're being unrighteous right now, John. But you know what? I love you. What? You're not going to smack me around? You know, people talk about, well, God must be mad at me. I'm going through this bad thing. Da, da, da. No. If you have come under the power of the new covenant, in other words, you've released your life to him and you've asked him to come in and and you've repented of the old life, all of that stuff that the gospel points to, he's never going to be mad at you again. He is satisfied through the blood of Christ. And to assume any other posture is to say the cross isn't enough. And, And so... It's not about that. It's it's about love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. This, I'll tell you what, and the reason I ran out of time last week is because I start teaching on stuff like this and these other passages of the Bible, they just start coming to, to life. They start flooding into my mind. And I just like, I just want to go there. I just, I, you guys got to understand, this is the best news in the time. It, it couldn't be better that you get to escape the jaws of hell And it really exists. It's really true. People would go there every day. You get to not only escape the jaws of hell, but you have, you get to be given a new life with the very presence of God dwelling within that he says you have already been seated in the heavenlies. Yeah, you're on your way there, but you've already been seated there. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You get to have a life that average Joe unless they bow the knee, we'll never see. This is a covenant unlike anything that man could produce. If I were God, would I have done it this way? I, I, I will, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I, I'm just going to, I'm not going to remember those. No, that's not how I do it. But I'm so grateful that that's how he did. And we get to enjoy the benefits of it. Interesting, the, the word lawless deeds, it's one word. And as I mentioned in King James's iniquities, the root of that word is twistedness. Seriously. And so it, it, he says, I'm going to be merciful to their unrighteousness and sins uh, and their sins and their twistedness. I will remember no more. Interesting. And don't look at me with Sunday faces. You're twisted. So am I. Have you ever had a thought that you, and maybe it was this morning, probably, no, I'm not going to say that, where you go, 
how on earth did that thought get through my brain? Oh my gosh. You know, it's like, oh, I saw some people's eyes like open up. It's like, yeah. Oh God, please forgive me. I shouldn't even have that kind of, that's twisted. And what he's saying here, folks, is that we all have this depravity that the, the, our old nature is, is constantly trying to rear up. And he's saying, you know what? Their sins and their lawless deeds, I'm not going to remember those. Not only are they not going to count against me, he says, I'm not going to remember. Now, I want you to understand something here. When he says, I'm not going to remember those, it's not because God has a bad memory. Have you ever tried to forget? Now, let me talk about that for a second. It's unreasonable. People do bad things. People do horrible things. I've experienced some, and I'm not going to tell you, sit here and say, oh, I forgot all about that. That's unreasonable. We remember. But the point of grace is choosing not to remember. It's not about forgetting. It's choosing not to remember. It's choosing not to have that count against me. And that's what God does. He says, he doesn't say, I forgot. He can't forget. But he can choose not to remember. And there's a difference. You understand? So he's saying, their sins, their lawless deeds, I choose not to remember. I will not have that be part of my relationship with them. I know that. I've made atonement for that through the blood of Christ. And now in this new covenant, you get to walk free. You can hold your head up, not based on what you did, but based on what he's done. That's the point of this. I want to take a minute. Well, actually a few minutes. I'm not going to tell you a minute when I don't, I know better. Um, I made up a chart hastily last night. Uh, it's up here on the, on the board, on the, on the screen. Uh, and the reason I say hastily is it's, it's, there's just a lot of information there, but I, I want you to understand some things about these covenants. There are some great similarities in the old covenant and the new covenant. But it stops with these similarities. I, and I'm doing this because I'm going to talk about ways that they're different in a minute. But there are some similarities that are striking. Now, if you notice, uh, across the top line, it says uh, Old Covenant Law. And then under that, it says Inauguration, Deliverance, Ratification. All right? Inauguration, the Old Covenant was inaugurated. That means it was brought up. It was... This is what the the old covenant will be. And it was inaugurated at Passover when the children of Egypt, the angel of death, passed over the houses that had the blood on the lintels and the doorposts and all that. And and it was inaugurated then. And then God announces his intentions. Then he carries them out. And then he ratifies them. So as he carries out his intentions, what happens? The people are delivered from Egypt. And uh, you'll notice here on inauguration, it talks about Passover. The people on through Israel's history, they celebrated the feast of Passover to remember the deliverance of the children of Israel from Pharaoh, from Egypt. And when they went through the Red Sea is the next part here. 
the deliverance when he, God miraculously delivered them through the sea. They walked through on dry ground. The Egyptian army was chasing them and God closed the sea up over the top and drowned all the soldiers and they had been delivered from Egypt. Egypt, by the way, is a shadow and a type for the world. We've been talking about shadows here, talking about shadows and promises. That's how this is breaking down. And so they, and, and we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that they were baptized into Moses. That that's essentially the, the picture of the people being baptized into Moses as they went through this Red Sea experience. And then the last thing is the ratification of the Old Covenant was when the law was literally given at Mount Sinai, when God gave Moses the law And he came down from the mountain with the tablets and said, this is the covenant that God is initiating with us. They celebrate that with the Feast of Weeks. Now, when it talks about inauguration in the Old Covenant, and I have blood underneath that, Hebrews chapter 9, we'll get to it in the next chapter, it talks about even the Old Covenant was not inaugurated without blood. And so, bear with me on this. I know that this is kind of turned from sermony to classroomy, but I want you to understand the distinctions I'm making here, that there had to be blood to inaugurate the covenant. So, we see that at the Passover, the lamb was sacrificed at twilight. In Exodus 12, it tells us that, back in, way back in the Old Testament. Dropping down, you see the arrow pointing down to the new covenant, the inauguration was the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, that he was sacrificed at twilight. It was a total fulfillment of the shadow from the old covenant to the new. And I want you to understand, these are fulfillments as these arrows point down. And so Israel, all through their history, celebrated the Passover, and Jesus died when? At Passover. He was the... Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And so as he sacrificed at the ninth hour, that means three in the afternoon, that's twilight on any Jewish calendar, the way that the Jews understand time. And so it was the same time. It was also the same date. You see down below where it says 114, Abib Nisan, and 116, the 14th day of the first month in the Hebrew calendar was called Abib. And then in the Greek calendar, it was actually an Aramaic or an Assyrian word, the the word Nisan, it's the corresponding month. It's just the language chain by the time the New Testament came along. So it's Abib and Nisan, and the inauguration of the covenant came at Passover. The deliverance came with the Red Sea. Uh, The inauguration came with Jesus' death. The deliverance came with his resurrection. So we have Passover and first fruits. And these are the same dates on the calendar. They're the exact same dates. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years apart. But God knew what he was doing when he was, when he was putting these covenants in place. The ratification, uh, again, on the top for the law, was when the law was given at Mount Sinai. Uh, it, 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 it says, here, see where it says 3,000 people die. Remember, Moses came down the mountain with the tablets. And, and I don't know if you, have you've read that in Exodus. He comes down the mountain with the tablets and he hears what he thinks is war in the camp. He says, like, what's going on in the camp? And he said, no, that's not war, Moses. That's singing. 
The people are having a party. He gets down there, he finds his brother Aaron, who was the first high priest. <clears throat> Thinking of real character there. Uh, but he gets down, his brother says, well, the people all threw their gold in this fire and, and this calf jumped out. So we're worship- we actually named the calf Yahweh, and they did. It says in the text, it says they named it Jehovah. They named it God. And they were dancing around celebrating this golden cow and calling it God. God wasn't real happy. Moses, remember, he broke the tablets. He had to go back and get a new set. Threw the tablets down, and he commanded the Levites, he said, go through the camp, get your sword, go through the camp, and start swinging. And I want you to take your friend, your neighbor, doesn't matter. If they were part of this, they're done. And they go through, and it says that 3,000 people died that day, the day that the inauguration of the new covenant came into place. It was the, it was the covenant, it was, it was the ministration of death is what the New Testament calls it. Go down to the ratification of the old covenant, or the new covenant. The law law was given on Mount Sinai. The spirit was given to ratify the new covenant. Same date. 50 days out from their deliverance from Egypt, from their Red Sea experience, was when God gave Moses the law. 50 days out from the resurrection of Jesus, God gave the Holy Spirit to ratify. And to ratify means to put into place, to permanent, to, to, it's, okay, it's a done deal. I'm ratifying this covenant. And so he ratifies the covenant 50 days out from the deliverance. Both covenants have the same dates, the same time frame. Now, where it talks about on Pentecost, remember what happens on Pentecost, Peter, you know, he sees the tongues of fire and all that on the people. He goes out and he preaches, same day. He goes out and here, a few weeks before, he's warming his hands at the end of his fire and denying Jesus with a curse and all that other jazz. And then, you know, Jesus restores him. Well, he goes out and he stands up and he starts to, to share the gospel. And I mean, he doesn't mince words. He starts telling these people, this Jesus whom you crucified was attested to you by signs and miracles and wonders and all that and it says the people were cut, their hearts were pierced. And how many people came to life that day? 3,000. The old covenant, 3,000 people die. The new covenant, 3,000 people live. Tell me that God doesn't know what he's doing down through the ages. You can't make this up. And nobody sat down and said, okay, let me get a calculator out here and figure this out. No, it's the way it came to us. And so very interesting similarities between these these covenants uh, as far as the time frame, as far as the, the Jewish feasts that were being observed at the time that these covenants came about, and as far as the fact that they were implemented in stages on the exact same dates. On the calendar, different years, obviously, but the same date. So that's about where the similarities stop. Because they're very dissimilar in their nature. Uh, I'll go through a quick list here as we wrap up. They were presented in different ways. The Old Covenant, remember it was given on Mount Sinai, thundering and fear. Remember the people that said, Moses? Don't have God talk to us anymore. I'm paraphrasing, but don't have him talk to us. You talk to God, and then you talk to us. He is really scary. It's because they're experiencing the holiness of God. 
God is separate from and above His people. And, and because sin had never been atoned for, He had to be separate. He said so much, even if a beast touches this mountain, it's dead. Separate from the people. A consuming fire, the thunder and the smoke and all of that. It wasn't just to put on a show. It was to illustrate that He is a God to be feared if you don't have covering for sin. Jesus, on the other hand, declared the new covenant in the upper room with love and grace to his men. This is the new covenant, my blood. The covenants are different in their goals. The goal of the old covenant was to discover sin, to condemn it, and to set a fence around it. That's really all it could do. It could put a fence. Remember I talked with you guys a few weeks ago about about the dog? I worked for a veterinary hospital when I was in high school and had this really, really, really mean dog that all he wanted to do was to bite me. It didn't matter. And I, and I almost killed it because I strangled it on accident. And that was a mess. But uh, what I was talking about was our nature. Our old nature is like that dog. And what the law does is it puts a muzzle on the dog. It never changes the nature of the person. It, it's external. It doesn't, it, it doesn't get to the heart. It puts a muzzle on the dog, doesn't it? Oh, well, I can be a good, that's why I can be a good person. That's why I can give it the office and I can, you know, go out and run the marathon and earn the points and the, get the dollars and all the stuff. I can be a great person. I can be a great moral person. I can be an ethical person. I can be a giving person and all of that. But until the nature has been addressed, I can still end up in hell. And that's the point of the gospel. That's the point of the new covenant. It's to get past all of that. It says, no, no, putting a muzzle on the dog isn't good enough. It's, it's the goal of the new covenant is to, to declare the love and the grace and the mercy of God and to give the opportunity for repentance and, and, and in that, Remission of sin, not just covering for sin, but sin to be remitted, to be blotted out, and eternal life. And what does he say is the requirement for you? Just believe it. And I don't mean believe it in a passive sense. I mean the word for believe, it's like 90 sometimes in the Gospel of John. The Greek word is pistuo. And what it is, it's a belief that's more than just mental assent. It's saying, I believe that the building's on fire, so I'm out of here. You know, it produces action. That's the point. It's a verb, right? I'm not talking about, well, I believe in God. Well, the Bible says the demons believe, and they shudder. That doesn't get them anywhere. So the point is, is this is an act of faith. It's not something that's just passive. It's like, oh, well, you're good. You're good. Okay, you're good. No, it costs God his son. And he's not just good with me putting a muzzle on the dog, he says, you need to really believe this. You need to take it to heart and allow me to come in and transform your life. That's on the other side of it. So they're different also in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The old covenant provided, remember we read in in Hebrews chapter 1, pieces and parts, okay? The old covenant said, uh, do it, and live, the old covenant, the new covenant says it's done, so love. The old covenant was the ministry of the Holy Spirit was given in portions. It was the, the prophets were given an anointing of the Holy Spirit. They were given 
the Holy Spirit for a season, for a specific purpose. All right? The Holy Spirit was not poured out until after the cross. Under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is poured out freely on anyone who will receive him by faith. Huge difference in the ministry of the Holy Spirit between the two covenants. They're different in their substance. The old covenant was vivid shadows. We've been talking about these shadows. All of these things are shadows. They pointed to a future fulfillment. They pointed, remember last week we talked about, they they point to a greater reality. And the greater reality is Christ. The greater reality is not sacrificing bulls and goats and sheep. The greater reality is the sacrifice once for all in Jesus himself. And so these shadows that the Old Testament, I love the richness of the Old Testament. I love the richness of the law. The law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The main thing is it's not what the problem's not in the law. The problem's in the people. It can't address the heart. And what God does in the new covenant, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to come in and forget about muzzling the dog. I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to give you a nature of spirit. I'm going to make you spiritually alive. And out of that, as you're availing yourself of the work of my Holy Spirit within, your life's going to change. And it'll radically change. I love when I see somebody that's all in for Christ and their life is just different. It means he's first. It means I, I, you know, I get out of bed in the morning and, and man, I don't have it wired, but I'll tell you what, I want him to govern my life. I want his presence in my life. I want him manifest in my life. I want when people bump into me, I want to spill Jesus on them, man. I want it. I want them to see his work. And, and, and I, and I take that seriously. And folks, there's a part of this thing called being a disciple of Christ. It's very serious. It's not something that's part of salvation, but it's a result of salvation is that I get to represent my Lord well to the people around me. They have different mediators. We talked about that at length. The, the, the Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant, Moses being a shadow and a type of the old covenant. They're different in how they were dedicated. The old covenant was dedicated with the blood of animals. Remember there in Exodus chapter 24, Moses sprinkles the, the blood of these animals on the people as he's dedicating the, the covenant of law. And the new covenant was dedicated with Jesus' blood, but and it was signifying his sacrificial death, but it's spiritually applied to his people. We'll talk about sprinkling Further on in Hebrews, in the next chapter, we'll talk about it because the writer goes into the sprinkling of blood, and we'll get into that more at that time. They're different in their practical effect on living. The old covenant illuminated man's bondage to sin. The new covenant provides liberty. When Jesus said, he who has a son is free, guess what? You're free. He, he doesn't, he doesn't come at us now and say, okay, here's a list of things that you got to do in order for me to be happy with you. He says, no, you're free. Now you're free to allow your life to be a response to my grace. And guess what? That's going to go well for you. It always does. They're different in their extent, the extent of their administration. The old covenant was confined to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, according to the flesh. Remember, we've looked, looked at the, 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 the law of the fleshly commandment versus the law uh, or the principle of an endless life. We looked at that last chapter. 
of the new covenant is extended to everybody. It's, it's extended to all nations, all peoples. And it's not rocket science, folks. It's very simple in its application. From the simplest minded person to somebody that is brilliant. It's a level playing field. It's not just for intellectuals. And it's not just for people on the street. It's for everybody. He offers this covenant freely. The old covenant didn't make anything perfect. They're different in what they effectively accomplished. It didn't make anything perfect. It it illustrated imperfection, didn't it? Uh, The new covenant can and will bring in the perfecting of God's people. If you belong to Jesus this morning, did you know that he is perfecting you? You go, huh, he didn't know what my life looked like this morning before church. But no, seriously, he is perfecting us. He is working in us. He is sometimes prying our fingers off of areas. But as long as we're in a, 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 we have a heart to cooperate with his work, he is perfecting his people. He declared you perfect. As I mentioned, it's part of the deal. He says, you know what? I'm going to dip that person in my righteousness. They belong to me. By faith, I have appropriated his work. I am declared perfect in God's eyes. And God sees me. He sees me in the righteousness of Christ, in the perfection of Christ. I don't have to try to work at it. I can rest. I can relax. I can come into his presence, boldly approach the throne of grace through the blood of Christ. That's the new covenant. The old covenant, not so much. Not so much. The new covenant will last forever, different in their duration. The old covenant was designed to prepare the way for the new covenant and then pass away as a principle of God's dealing with men. Verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is an interesting verse, folks. I, I, I saved it for last because it's the last verse, but I really, I, I, I am just impressed at the prophetic nature of this verse. He says, yeah, he's saying it's a new covenant and, and the old one is obsolete. And he says it's becoming obsolete and growing old and it's ready to vanish away. Remember, this was written probably around 60 to 64, somewhere in there. Uh, in 66, there was uh, a guy by the name of Titus uh, Vespasian. He was, uh, what had happened was Nero had passed off the scene as the emperor of Rome. And a, a, a guy named Vespasian came in. He was the new emperor. One of the first things he did was he gave his oldest son charge over the war with the Jews. And in 66, the Romans set up a siege around the city of Jerusalem. And it took four years for the, and the people were, there were horrible things going on in the city at that time. They ran out of food, they were running out of water. There was cannibalism, there was all kinds of atrocities going on. By the time the Romans broke through the siege banks in 70 AD, they were so incensed that they wiped the temple mount clean. I've been there, you may have been too, and you can still see where the, the rocks were pushed off the edge and have put these huge dents in the road below. They wiped it clean. Judaism, for all intents and purposes, was wiped 
out at that time. Yeah, we still have a form of Judaism today, but temple sacrifices, all the stuff that was going on there, the writer here says it's growing old and it's ready to pass away. It's just a few years before that became a practical reality in the life of every Jew. They had no religion to practice at that point. Yeah, they again, they, they have a form of Judaism now, but it's mainly Judaism is a very secularized religion and and all of that. And there are faithful ones and all, but, but the Jews, that's why they yearn for a temple. That's why some really want to get the sacrifices going and all that, because it doesn't exist. And so when the writer wrote this, it's, it's growing old, it's ready to pass away. I believe that the Holy Spirit was giving him the ability to prophesy in a very short time, it would. He wouldn't have written this letter if this was written after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was written before. And the writer sees things are crumbling. He sees that theoretically, that the law, the old covenant, is it's been replaced, it's obsolete. And he sees that in a very real practical sense that the old covenant was passing away. Fabulous. Interesting. I made some slides up um, here. This is in Rome. Uh, this is called the Arch of Titus. And you can see the Colosseum in the background. I, I remember standing in, in inside the arch. I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. I, when I went to Rome, I stood inside the arch, and I, I mean, I just tears welled up in my eyes because this is celebrating Titus's life. And inside... Uh, go to the next slide. You see that there's a a, a, a a picture, and you can see the menorah from Jerusalem inside here. This is about Titus's conquest of Jerusalem. It's about his conquest in Israel because they didn't stop at Jerusalem. They remember there was a whole there was a pocket in Masada and some other places. But anyway, next slide, close up. This is about when they carted off the implements to the temple back to Rome. And this is a fulfillment of what we see here in Romans, or I'm sorry, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Uh, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And it did. Interesting chapter, folks. Better promises, greater reality, not shadows. I'm so blessed that we don't deal with shadows, that we deal with a living, risen Lord who is intimately or wants to be intimately involved in every aspect of my life and your life, that he wants to, to live in us and live through us. Couldn't get that in the old covenant. Couldn't happen. Sin had never been dealt with completely. God couldn't come in. He won't inhabit a dirty vessel. And yet now, through the power of the cross, through the, the, the greater sacrifice, through the, through the resurrection, proof that his sacrifice was accepted, we have the ability to live this life, to walk this walk, never alone, but through the agency of the Holy Spirit dwelling within, prompting us to a life that brings glory to him. What a great covenant we have. Yeah, it took blood to inaugurate. And that's what Jesus did. Not the blood of animals, but the blood of the Son of God himself. I am grateful. I am eternally grateful. The more I study these passages, the more grateful I become because I think, 
Lord, you didn't miss a thing. You covered every aspect of it. And you simply beckoned to us to come, to submit our lives to you, to bow the knee to you, and to allow you to work in us, to live in us, to work in us, to work through us in redeeming, and in, 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 not redeeming, but in, in reconciling a lost world to yourself. What a great privilege it is, folks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, brief look at the covenants. Lord, thank you that you love us the way you do and that you call us to be your own.